This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based for the last week on the eastern end of Long Island. I am the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast. A digital advertising consultancy with an ethos, Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant advice across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing Accredited Brand and Audience Safe Sales Solutions, adver- media buying and organizational training for media publishers, please reach out to scott at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Greetings there, Jethro. Well, good to see you today, Fred. Um, this is our last view of your background. Uh, this particular background, that's right. <laughs> well, in, in, in this will be kind of our uh, so what are you up to segment. And one of the things I'm that's up right. to is standing in the midst of boxes of computer equipment and podcasting stuff and all the rest of it. Because as you allude to, I will be moving to what what, what is the online term? A clothis, a closet office. <laughs> <laughs> in a very small that sounds apartment. awful it, it should be just a, a treat <laughs> and it will be in a very small apartment in brooklyn but it will be good to be back in the city and uh, we're looking forward to it so yeah that will be the balance of our week which will explain incidentally that next week we'll be releasing two interviews instead of uh, our usually scheduled chit chat yeah, and you know, through ever since we started this, we have not done a interview in lieu of a live show yet. So we've been pretty good about making sure that this time happens. And the only reason that we're letting it go is because you're you are actually moving, and that the process of getting everything set up is just um, it's it's one thing to do it mobile, which is possible, but to yes. get set up in your new environment is just a a big ask for sure. Well, and I appreciate your understanding, and I appreciate the understanding of our audience. I know a lot of us have gone through disruption of one kind or another. Fortunately, we weren't doing this when I was trying to get back from England, which was, yeah, that would have been a total nightmare. Yes. But, you know, it's it's been a good week. Um, I know you've been bouncing around a little bit. I just wrapped up um, this morning, as a matter of fact, the last of a four-part series for the Georgia 
uh, Professional Standards Commission on, well, we did two things. We did the ethics of social media for educators, and then we did the ethics of remote learning. And uh, they actually set it up really well. They had me do a presentation at the front end of each of those. And then they convened a panel discussion to go over it from kind of a boots on the ground perspective in Georgia. And this morning was um, this morning was the panel discussion for the ethics of remote learning. And just to throw it out there, I want to give a shout out to uh, my friends and colleagues at the National Association of Community College Teacher Education Programs, or NACTEP. They have the worst <laughs> acronyms in this business. And um, I also got a chance to talk to, I don't know, 50 or 60 of their members from across the country also doing the ethics of remote learning uh, hmm. last week. So um, kind of webinars have been flying around a little bit. We'll take a little bit of a break, and then I know things will pick up later in the summer. Yeah. Well, so for me, I uh, traveled for the first time since the pandemic to a school to do a training on communication among a leadership team, which is a lot of fun. And what makes it so fun is that you get to role play really awkward conversations between people. <laughs> and it is just a blast. And I mean, I love talking with people and connecting, especially online. Being in Alaska, I have done this for many years online only. And um, and being able to get in person with people once again has just been really, really nice. So really grateful for that opportunity. Thankful to be able to be in Missouri. I got to see for the first time in my life, if you can believe this, the Mississippi River. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, That's I've really never cool. seen it before. Yeah, <laughs> it was awesome. So we were... Um, we were down in uh, Cape Girardeau, and which is right on the banks of the Mississippi River. And so, you know, just took a five minute drive over the river and checked it out, took some pictures. It was a lot of fun and uh, pretty cool to to see that for the first time. Growing up in Utah and California and Washington, I we don't have rivers like the Mississippi River out there. So it's a little different. <laughs> in fact, a funny story, my wife, who grew up in Texas and Oklahoma, had, you know, obviously seen the Mississippi River through her travels as a child. And we saw a river somewhere shortly after we were married. And I was like, wow, that is a big river. And my wife was like, what are you talking about? That is not a big river. <laughs> I said, yeah, it is. Look how big it is. It, like, you you couldn't even jump across that. And my wife was like, Jethro, it's <laughs> not a big <laughs> yeah, river. Yeah, just stop talking. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're really being ignorant. So, you know, uh, we don't have a lot of big rivers out here in the West. And so that was a, that was a cool experience. And that, I mean, what a nerdy thing to be excited about, but no, I, that I was the only other thing I wanted to see was that. <laughs> well, for me, you know, growing up in new England, you know, as I started to do this work and, have a chance to travel a little bit, realizing just how big this country is. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, what was it, seven, eight years ago when I first came up to Alaska and you and I met? I mean, going to a single state that is basically the size of the lower 48, it, it, truly mind-blowing stuff. Yeah, I mean, you can unreal. drive from one end of my home state to the other in about two and a half hours, depending on traffic on the mass bike. It's, it's a very different thing altogether. Yeah. So I have a friend in Germany and we were talking um, this weekend and he said that he drove over. Um, I was driving from Washington to Utah this weekend and he said that he had just driven to Barcelona and passed like six countries, went through six countries as he was driving um, with his family. And I was I was amazed at how small Germany is compared to what I've experienced here. So anyway, just really fascinating. I love learning about different places and how different well, so, and how silly I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all are. And that's the point of travel, right? Is to broaden our horizons and make us mm -hmm. appreciate things. Of course, you know, we had spent that year over in England um, at the, you know, spanning the start of the pandemic. And when you do spend a little bit of time over there, it's like European history starts to make more sense. Like with everybody living so close side by side and so little distance from one point to another. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I haven't thought about it like that. <laughs> this is not a history podcast, so we should turn our <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we should turn our attention to our main focus, which are cyber traps. And Jethro is kind enough to indulge me today because 
We have a terrific interview coming out on Thursday with Diana Graber, the founder of CyberWise, the creator of the Cyber Civics Middle School Learning Program, a really successful program. So it seemed to me that this was a great opportunity to revisit where all the Cybertrap stuff started, which yeah. was Cybertraps for the Young back in 2011. And I think if, if you'll indulge me for a sec, that one of the things that people might be interested in learning is that Cybertraps for the Young was a book title that purposely references this great American censor from the 19th century named Anthony Comstock. And I don't know if you've run across him, but he's had a little bit of a resurgence lately, um, mm -hmm. particularly in, in conservative circles, um, because he was a postal inspector for the U.S. Postal Service and spent the better part of 40 years, actually, I guess, 42 years, trying to stamp out indecency and obscenity in American mm -hmm. culture. And, you know, obviously, at the end of the day, that was a real uphill battle. And, you know, it was, it was one that was sort of doomed to failure for a bunch of reasons. But he famously wrote a book in, I think, 1883 called Traps for the Young. And actually, it's public domain now. You can find it on Project Gutenberg hmm. and things like that. And it's, it's huge. It's like 650 pages of everything that's wrong with American society. In and, and you're like, I'm going to double that page number. <laughs> no, God forbid. I actually, <laughs> publisher would have shot me. So yeah, anyway, no when, when I was looking at helping parents understand some of the risks arising out of digital devices, you know, I don't, I don't align myself in any way with Mr. Comstock, um, <laughs> given the work that he was doing. I'm a big First Amendment guy. He not so much. But it did seem to me that that phrase, cyber traps for the young, was evocative of mm -hmm. some of the things that parents are always worried about, right? Which is what kind of risks do their kids face? What kind of trouble can they get into? And it seemed like, you know, why not pull that thread out of a hundred years ago and mm -hmm. and run with it? So anyway, that was the that was the origin story for the title of the book. The goal obviously was and still is to help parents understand what the potential consequences are of giving kids these unbelievably powerful devices, which in turn give kids access to all of the stuff online that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and it sounds like the the purpose of Traps for the Young by Comstock was not so much to um, uh, to just inform people, but really to persuade people to not make specific choices. And I think that that's mm -hmm. that's another thing that you have in common that you want people to think deeply before giving their kids devices and before making those choices that are going to stick with them forever. As we've talked about numerous times, once you let the cat out of the bag, it's pretty hard to put it back in. Once you open Pandora's box, it's out. And there's not much that you can do as a parent to roll back time. And I I know one of the things that I've talked with parents numerous times about is they wish that they could go back and not have given their kids devices. That's what they always say. I wish I would have waited to give them a device instead of giving it to them so quickly. It's really, really hard. And I think that, you know, kids will, in my experience, kids will take as much license as you will give them. You know, that, yeah. that that's natural. And quite honestly, in that respect, they're not all that much different from adults. They're right. less experienced and and sort of less capable of of dealing with some of the consequences that can arise. And that's where the parental job comes in. What was that clip you sent me of the uh, folks who were um, complaining? Uh, what was the context of that? They were complaining about something, and some newspaper editor basically said, just try parenting as being yes. the first yep. thing you should try and do. And yeah, that was actually from a – just to give a little context, and I want to give yeah. a shout-out to uh, Jess Leahy, who shared her um, – she's the author of the book The Gift of Failure and the new book The Inoc the addiction inoculation, which are both great reads, especially on this topic as well. Um, but she said she loves her police blotter. And in the police blotter, uh, they complained about 
you know, some technology related issue and, and the, uh, the, the police officer said, we'll try parenting as the solution to dealing with that particular issue, which I thought was, was brilliant. That sounds like a good title for this also for this well, uh, podcast. Think- episode. <laughs> <laughs> Just try parenting. I, I totally would <laughs> run with that because now that I recall, I mean, the great thing about it is that Jess Leahy is up in Vermont. She's in Burlington and the yeah. complaint came in from Hillcrest view, which or Hillcrest terrace, which is an area I know I didn't live that far from there. Yeah. So, and, and it was a fight over Xbox. That's what it was. That's the right. The parents yeah. were upset that the kids were accessing content through the Xbox, which, you know, is something we haven't really delved into, but we should at some point. And they were like asking the police for help about how to limit what their kids were seeing. <laughs> so in that respect, I think the police response was completely justified. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll put a link to that one in the, in the show notes. So people can see just the, the beauty oh, yeah, of that, that whole thing. It was great. Yeah. So anyway, people should follow Jess Leahy. She is at Jess Leahy on Twitter, a great source of information. And obviously someone who's thinking about this stuff uh, with a great deal of uh, intelligence and and thoughtfulness. Yeah, for sure. Um, And someone that I've interviewed twice and just love every opportunity that I have to talk with her. I've interviewed her on transformative principle a couple of times and it's, she's good. Well, let's bring her on here. Yeah, I think we should. What are we waiting for? Come on, Jethro, get it together. (laughs) Okay. So, um, so a couple things that um, that so you wrote this book in 2011. That's mm-hmm. that's a decade ago, and um, yeah. things have just gotten yeah. yeah, they've just gotten more crazy than they were back then. And so um, I think one of the things that I want to talk about for sure is um, the the Facebook's plan to create a kid specific version of Instagram, which I think is just absolutely crazy. I mean that's that I don't think that's a good idea. So let's talk a little bit about that first. Right. Let's, let's set the stage, if you will, for this whole thing, which is that Facebook, which owns Instagram has a policy like Twitter, Snapchat, what have you, that kids need to be at least 13 years old before they sign up and use these services. And that's driven by the child online privacy protection act. Uh, which is that's where the cutoff comes in terms of what kind of data are you collecting from uh, children, you know, of that age or younger. And so they, you know, Congress, when it passed that, wanted to do something, maybe not enough, to protect the privacy of young kids and the collection of data from kids. So there's all of the privacy aspects. Before we really delve into what the implications are vis-a-vis the service, I do think that it's worth mentioning that there's there's a real problem with parents who are willing to let their kids get onto these services younger than 13. I mean, 13 may be too early for some kids anyway. So that's a separate conversation yes. to have. But what parents, I think, should reflect upon with respect to allowing their 11 or 12-year-old to sign up is that it it, it's not good role modeling in terms of respect for um, standards, regulations, even law, depending on how you how strongly you want to phrase it. And it, I think, really just creates this potential for misuse or mistakes that could be really problematic for kids. So, you know, it seems to me that that parents do have a role to say no. The service says you have to wait till 13 and then we'll talk about it and go from there. Well, yeah. And that piece right there, Fred, I think is so, so vital. Here's something that I would tell parents all the time. Look, the requirements for that service are that they're at least 13 years old. If nothing else, parent, use that as an excuse while you figure this out. You know, take, just say, I, you're not allowed because you're not 13. That's all there is to it. And that's what they say. I can't, I can't go against that. And if you aren't strong enough to have a reason yourself for why they shouldn't do it, you can at least blame it on their policy and say you're not allowed to. And that would be a great step in the right direction, if not for all the other reasons that are exist out there for why they shouldn't be doing it anyway. Yeah, and, and to be modestly fair to Instagram and Facebook and some of these other services, every few weeks, even months, you'll see 
releases or news items that suggest that they're trying to crack down on underage use because Mm -hmm. they know it's a problem. But then we get into what can only be described as a mixed message, which is Facebook announcing that they're in the process of developing a version of Instagram specifically aimed at kids under 13. So what's your reaction to that? Well, it seems like they are trying to do something to entice them to use adult materials when they are younger. It's kind of like if a tobacco company was like, Hey, here's this, I don't know, big league chew, or um, here's this little uh, candy cigarettes that we want to make sure that you are committed to our brand before you become of age. So that when you become of age, you're going to choose Marlboro or Kodiak or whatever it is that you're going to, you're going to use so that you're already acclimated. No, this is how you're supposed to use this kind of thing. And I just think that that is a terrible idea. Let me, let me tell you, Jethro, (laughs) I grew up in a household with two confirmed smokers and I remember those candy cigarettes, right? You know, we thought it was like the end of cool, you know, to pretend that you're doing that. And then when you get older enough, old uh, old enough to realize the health and just sort of general living conditions of living in a household with two smokers and i was asthmatic as a kid so it it was just really really challenging but um you know it we i i'm the oldest of four and none of us smoke and none of us <laughs> can Mm -hmm. even imagine smoking given our experience with our parents. But the idea that these companies are in fact trying to train children in the experience or the, the posing of smoking is, is terrible. And then of course, more recently, um, and this stuff wasn't around when I was a kid, but you've got these electronic cigarettes and the practice of vaping and companies putting out basically fruit flavored things that are more like, you know, wine coolers than they are Mm -hmm. actual, you know, tobacco products. And again, it's all designed to make this stuff seem like a recreational activity as opposed to a real health risk. Well, and they, they all know that if you get someone hooked when they're young to anything, period, Mm -hmm. then, then they're going to stick with that for the rest of their lives. Here's an example. When I take notes, I still use the note-taking framework that I learned when I was in like third or fourth grade because that's what I learned. It stuck with me. And to be honest, I've worked really hard to teach myself different ways of taking notes <laughs> just so that I can have a different idea of what that could look like. And and that's a really simple, innocuous, not a big deal at all thing. But then when you think about exposing someone to something like alcohol, like tobacco, like pornography, like Instagram and Facebook that are addictive, then you're going to have the same the same lock-in, which is what they're looking for. They want to make sure that they get kids before they choose to go to Snapchat, before they choose to go to some other service that does the same thing and have them locked into their own service. So they're spending all their time and putting all their effort and energy into that. For example, I joined Gmail many years ago. Do you know how hard it is to stop using Gmail? It's nearly impossible. I want out. I'm so dead. I want Seriously. <laughs> well, you know, to paraphrase the old saying, if you grab them by the smartphone, their hearts and minds will follow. <laughs> and I, I think I think that, that you're absolutely right that, you know, this is Facebook looking at a rising generation. And the sooner that they get them into that brand category, you know, the more likely it is that they'll hold on to them. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, to be fair, again, it's important to say that when you look at the articles about this new service, it's absolutely clear that Instagram and Facebook are going to try to put measures in place to limit what kids have access to, to protect kids when they're using this service. But, you know, if, I were dealing with this as a boots on the ground parent, which fortunately I'm not right now, you know, you have to ask yourself if you're creating a service, which is only kids, there's going to be a certain element of the population that will be attracted to that service because that's where the kids are. 
you know, and whether it's advertisers or it's marketers or it's people with much less pleasant motives, it's just, it seems like a bad idea. And day in and day out, we've talked about this, Jethro, the cybersecurity piece, the bad guys only need to get in once. Mm-hmm. And the people doing the cyber defense have to be perfect all the time. So why would you have your kids sign up for something which is all kids and just right. this pool of attractive targets? Yeah. I, to me, that that seems just absolutely crazy. I can't, I can't even imagine. I think about people who I try to think who would want this, who would want this for their kids. And and I can think of a couple of examples of someone who, you know, if you are a um, if you are a parent who has a kid who's involved in something very intensely, like uh, cheerleading or or a sport or uh, acting or dancing or something like that, where they they need to, quote unquote, build a resume over time as they prepare to, you know, go to college or go into the workforce and and do this thing professionally, there there could be some uh, desire to have that happen even at a young age. And so, for example, my brother has um, three wonderful little boys who are ridiculously good at baseball. It is just crazy what they can do and at football, too, at such a young age. They're just incredibly athletic. And my brother, who hates social media anyway, wouldn't do <laughs> wouldn't do this. But I could see how, with the the potential that they have to play these sports professionally, which I think they actually have a shot at, um, I could see where that could be an issue where you may want to to have that opportunity. But I don't think that building an audience for someone who's under 13, which is the other thing that I can think of, is is something that we want to be teaching them, that we want them to be paying attention to at this young age. Uh, sure. Picking up on that point, I mean, in a sense, what you're really driving at is this idea of brand identity, right? Mm-hmm. And it's one thing if you're going to be a sponsorship-seeking professional athlete. But it's another thing entirely if you're talking about, quote unquote, average kid who's now mm. wrapping their identity around this idea of how they appear online and how many likes they get. I mean, we at some point should do a show about body dysmorphia and psychological aspects arising out of social media because the research is growing about the implications of that. And again, we get back to this idea that even if Facebook and Instagram successfully wall off this service so that it's perfectly protective. The core concept of the service is still flawed. It's built around this idea of how appealing is my online presence? What kind of feedback am I getting from people? And it seems to me that that's really not the best lesson to be teaching kids or allowing kids to teach themselves you know, at the age of 10, 11, 12. Mm -hmm. Well, and let me give another perspective on this. Um, There are, there are major advantages to kids having a real audience for the things that they're doing. So from an educational perspective, if the teacher is the only audience, then it really doesn't matter that much. But if you can somehow find a way for kids to put their creations, their work out in front of real people, it makes a huge difference. And it really adds to the work ethic that goes into the things that they're creating. It adds to the quality. All that is very beneficial. The The problem is, is that that doesn't need to be an Instagram for kids younger than 13. There are many other ways to do that. And so I've had students who blogged. We put protections in place to ensure, one, they didn't talk about where they live too. They didn't use their real names so that their personal information wasn't out there, but they got great satisfaction from having other people comment, even if they were just in a different class within the school, even if it was private, just within our school, having somebody besides their lame teacher reading it was really <laughs> beneficial, <laughs> you know, and, or and that's parents, a, as the kid. Or, Yeah. <laughs> And so Um, finding a way to do that, I think is important, but this is not it. I I completely agree with you. I I think that 
feedback and affirmation are important parts of growing up and they're important parts of, of becoming a creative person or, or honestly, even a dedicated student of any sort, right? If you're mm -hmm. going, if you're getting good grades because you work hard, that should be affirmed, but you should be able to develop that sense of affirmation or receive that sense of affirmation, honestly, without relying on the kindness of strangers, which mm -hmm. is, you know, and, and unfortunately, if there's one thing that the last decade and a half has taught us is that there are so many strangers who are not kind. And, and yeah. that's the real hard part. And I, I can't, God, I was a nerdy, you know, kind of hobbity kid back when I was a child at 10 or 11. I, boy, I had enough challenge dealing with my classmates in the real world. I would yeah. not have wanted to have dealt with them online. Well, and this is another really important piece. Even so I've been a, a school principal for several years, mostly in the middle school area where a lot of this stuff really comes to a head. And I will tell you over the last five years that I was a principal, I do, I cannot think of a single situation of problems in school that did not have a social media element or a smartphone related element to it. And as more kids have gotten devices at younger ages, I've seen this more and more. And yes, this is anecdotal, but this is my real experience as a principal. Almost everything came from problems with technology. And for us to think that creating a space just for kids is somehow going to make it so that these problems don't happen or we can teach the kids how to do it right. I promise you that is just not going to happen. These problems exist naturally and they are a healthy part of kids growing up of having conflict and figuring out how to manage that and finding out who you are. And that's all important. But then you add in these tools that they're not prepared to deal with. And it just makes it that much more difficult and that much more challenging and and heartbreaking when they do make mistakes that could have been prevented or they do say or see or experience things that didn't need to happen. Yeah, no, I agree. And, um, you know, hearkening back uh, to the old Siskel and Ebert show, I think <laughs> you and I are both two thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I do want to say real quick before we move on to the next topic if you know someone who uh, you're listening to this and you know someone who can help us with that conversation about body dysmorphia, please get in touch with us because we would love to bring an expert on about that specifically. And I know someone out there listening to this knows someone. So I'm at Jethro Jones on Twitter. Fred is at Cybertraps. Reach out to us and let us know. Um, and, and we'd love to talk with someone uh, who has more expertise on that. That's a terrific shout out, Jethro, and hopefully someone will respond. Um, we can also uh, do a little digging and we'll find somebody to talk because I actually oh, we always do. An, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not too hard. I, I think that's an incredibly important topic for us to address. So we'll put that on the list. Um, shifting gears a little bit uh, to something that is totally out of our control in terms of what the yeah. outcome will be. Um, I don't know how deeply we want to get into this right now, because I do think we should do a separate show uh, yeah. at the appropriate time, but the Supreme court is about to hear arguments in a really interesting case arising out of Pennsylvania of a cheerleader on the JV cheer squad who was having a really bad day and decided that she was going to send a 24-hour Snapchat. So I assume that would be a Snapchat story to, I don't know, about 240 friends. Mm -hmm. And basically, the, the, the Snapchat consisted of um, F school, F cheerleading, F everything. I mean, there was about six things that she, um, you know, told off. And even though people think of Snapchat as a disappearing medium, you it's know what not. happened. <laughs> it's not because somebody took a snapshot of the image of her expletive laden message and showed it to the cheerleading coaches um, who basically said, as you might expect, that that's not appropriate behavior, that she should not have been saying those things, that it was disruptive, et cetera, and so forth. And so she was penalized and she challenged the penalty. I mean, I, I think now she's, 
She must be either out of school or just about to get out of school. These things mm-hmm. take time. Uh, but the Supreme Court will be looking at the issue, and they'll decide, by the way, by June. So we'll definitely get into this uh, sometime yeah. later this summer. But they'll be deciding whether or not she has a free speech right to say something utterly off campus, um, after school hours, online, not using school equipment. It'll be interesting to see what they say. Yeah, it it certainly will be. And this is an area where so much, like I said, happens relating to things online. And so much of that brings the drama into the school. And one of the things that our our general counsel for our school districts in multiple school districts, not just one, but multiple, have said repeatedly is that if something happens outside of school and it brings that drama into the school, you have a right and an obligation as the school to address it. And so uh, it'll be fascinating to see how that changes with the Supreme Court's ruling, because on the one hand, I agree, kids should be able to express themselves and express how they feel about things. On the other hand, um, you you can't be causing all this drama and disrupting the whole school environment um, because of because of your frustrations and um, and there's there's some there's some wisdom on both sides of that and I'm not I'm not sure what the right answer is and I'm really interested to see what happens with this because it'll it'll have a big impact for school principals all over the place and so many things that. Um, principals have addressed in the past, if they go one way, will be essentially barred from addressing them going forward, which will which will be really interesting. If it goes the other way, so many things that we've kind of let go, we're <laughs> going to now have to deal with that we maybe don't want to deal with. Absolutely true. And, you know, a I, I, couple of points. And, and again, um, if, if we have a chance, we'll do an hour-long show on this. But the, um, the, the case is really in the line of cases going back to 1968, which was Tinker Tinker versus Des Moines, in which Mm -hmm. a bunch of students wanted to wear armbands in school to protest the Vietnam War, and they were disciplined for doing so. And back then, I think it was seven to two or six to three, the Supreme Court ruled that they had a right to do it as long as it was not disruptive, which is where that language began to uh, emerge into the case law. And I think this will be a decision. I, I was, there's a great article in the Washington Post this morning about it. Um, this will be a decision that school attorneys are saying is really once in a generation, that yeah. this will reset school speech for students um, in, in ways that may not change for another two or three decades. Um, yeah. it, it will be a big deal. And, and the other group we keep shouting out to folks would love to talk to I would think if you're involved in school insurance, you're going to want to um, maybe chat with us and have a conversation about how this is going to drive some of the school insurance issues going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those those are areas where I, as a principal, only was tangentially aware of those kinds of things. But I know that the um, that after a student was suspended and sued the school district as, as, as happens all the time. I mean, that's not, that's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, but they don't teach you about that in principal training school, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) um, when that happens, you know, they're the insurance companies usually are the ones who step up to, um, to foot the bill if the district loses. So it's not coming out of the general fund of the school district. And that's something that I just didn't know, uh, for many years as a principal. And then when I learned about that, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> what a revelation. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm curious, actually. Let's let's just put on our, our hats for the moment, our voting hats. And before the Supreme Court even hears arguments or issues a ruling, what would your preferred outcome be? Um, so my preferred outcome would be that the school has permission to address and deal with the situation, but that she is she's not allowed to be restricted from her access to public education. Is that uh, vague enough, or should I be more specific? <laughs> no, <that's, laughs> well done. That's a very political answer. I like that. Um, I will tell you that my take on this is that I am going to 
side a little bit more on the First Amendment of students perspective that um, there needs to be a relatively high threshold of disruption before the school can actually get involved. And my take on this particular case, which I think may be making it a little bit easier for the justices, is that it's hard to see that there was a lot of disruption. There was disrespect mm-hmm. without any question. But you know, I it's not like she shut down a classroom over some remark. You know, you could easily imagine in our contemporary society things she could have written that would have been much more problematic. But yeah. I think just kind of swearing at the world, you know, seriously, I, I yeah, I no, and and that's where I say she shouldn't be barred from appropriate education. However, being kicked off the cheerleading squad, to be honest, like nobody on the cheerleading squad wants someone toxic on the cheerleading squad. I mean, they have a bad enough reputation of being toxic already. (laughs) So (laughs) you don't need to add to it, you know? And, and that's a situation where I, I think not being on the, on the cheerleading squad is an appropriate reaction. If that's, if that's how you feel about things, then you don't have to be on the cheerleading squad. You can go do something else. There's plenty of opportunities, but should she be suspended from the academic program at school? I would say absolutely no. not because oh, I agree. Yeah. she should be allowed I, to express her frustrations. I agree with that completely. I, I think, yeah, we, we might, we might differ a little bit in terms of, you know, whether or not her venting, um, kind of completely off campus is justified, you know, justifies her being bounced from the team. I, I'd have to think about that a little bit more. Um, I think that, uh, you know, certainly it's a teachable moment and that's ultimately mm-hmm. the point of all of this sort of how you best teach it is an interesting question, but um, it will be fun to talk about this in more detail when we've actually got the decision to yeah. chew apart and, <laughs> yeah, decide. for sure. That'll be great. So um, just by way of mention, I don't know if we want to dig too deeply into this, but there's a couple of minor points I wanted to mention. Um, one of the things I've been tracking in the Cybertraps compendium that's on our, our website, cybertraps.com, are the um, remarkable stories coming out of the private schools in England. Mm-hmm. And actually, they <laughs> over there, it's a little confusing. They're described as public schools, even though they're incredibly elitist and expensive yeah. and private. But um, in any case, what ended up happening was that uh, a young woman who had been assaulted um, both electronically and physically at one of these schools set up a website to allow other people to tell their stories and it got flooded from wow. you know people all over the country who went to all of these different schools and it, it I, I really do encourage people to flip through some of the headlines that I've co- I've collected because number one it's a really interesting insight into the ways in which kids are misusing devices you know towards their classmates and for educators and for administrators like yourself Jethro the ease with which somebody could collect material and expose this with a simple mm-hmm. website, I think is a real lesson for the educational community. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think that we have time to go uh, too much more into this, but uh, we've got links in the show notes at cybertraps.com and you should definitely check through that. And more importantly, you, you just breeze through this thing that I think is Amazing, which is the compendium that you put together every week, which lists a ton of articles about the things that we're talking about. And so there's there's so much that we could talk about on here, Fred, that we never get to because there's just not enough time. And and but there's so much that's important for us to know about and be aware of. And so on cybertraps.com, Fred does this amazing compendium that is just awesome that you should definitely go look at and subscribe to the RSS feed so that you can get it, sign up in the email and he'll email it out to you each week. And that, that I think is so, so such good work. I mean, it's just amazing. It just blows my mind how you're able to keep track of all this. And the only thing I can say is you've been doing it for over a decade. (laughs) So that's how you can stay on top of it. I get overwhelmed just thinking about it every time I see it. Well, 
One of my dreams for the show, Jethro, is that um, we'll get sponsorship from At Workflowy, which is yeah. this un- <laughs> unbelievable note-taking app that, in fact, I've been using for at least a decade and probably a little longer. Go to workflowy.com. Um, I do the um, I do the pro version, which will cost you a brutal four ninety five a month. And it is honestly, with the exception of the MLB app, which I'll give a shout out to as well, um, that's the best money I spend on apps each month. It's it's phenomenal yeah. stuff. So anyway, I, I dump all of my research files into that. I take out the stuff that I think is relevant to the work that you and I are doing. And it's just there for people to use as conversation starters, teachable moments, exercises, you name it. But I really do encourage both educators and parents especially to check it out each week because it's a good way to get a rough idea of the trends that are out there. Yeah, and uh, Jonathan Lane on uh, Facebook just recently commented on this show that he has a friend whose teenage daughter has called the police twice because the parents took away her phone. And that kind of story is is scary and disheartening because that is – Yeah, it really is. And Jethro, you may recognize the last name. This is my brother, Jonathan, who is. Oh, hey, Jonathan, um, (laughs) Fred's brother, (laughs) who is uh, a historian and uh, working with Revolutionary Revolution 250 in Boston to help us celebrate the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution. And also, um, I should give a shout out to his podcast, Revolution 250. So look that up as well. Yeah. You know, we, cool. we could do actually an interesting show at some point because um, this attachment to devices and to uh, apps and so forth has actually triggered a number of physical attacks on both teachers and parents because mm-hmm. kids get so wrapped up in this. And that actually, yeah. Jethro, I think is another um, another reason circling back to what you said at the beginning to delay the introduction of devices because you slow down that attachment, that addiction, and you're able to have much more rational conversations about it. But if a kid basically has had access to, and to be clear, they don't own, they've had access to an electronic device since the age of five or six, you know, by the time they're 15 or 16, how are you going to course correct at that point? It's going to be nearly impossible for sure. Right. I mean, that's exactly. that's the yeah. real tragedy. Well, it can be. It doesn't have to be. And I don't want people to leave this podcast thinking, oh, my God, I gave my kid a phone at eight and now they're going to turn into some kind of psychopath. That's not necessarily the case. <laughs> the only point that we're, we're trying to make is that things are just a little bit more complicated, you know, with respect to the parenting issues and the guidance issues that parents really want to give their kids as they're getting older. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we do want to encourage them to, to support their kids and growing and learning and making good decisions and all that kind of stuff. So you're right. We don't want it to be all doom and gloom, but, uh, but a lot of it is. <laughs> so. and well, no. And, and to be fair, that is why I included this last bullet item because I, I have now resolved that we need to have one good piece of news <laughs> Um, as we're going through and and i'll start with a little bit of cautionary tale um that the um that you know distracted driving has become the single largest cause of teen deaths in the united states and devices have a huge part of that and one of the things that i'm really encouraged by is that we're starting to see kids Um, develop their own messages about how to reduce distracted driving. And one of the things that I came across, we may as well give a shout out to the the kids at Johansson High School in Modesta, California. They've developed a whole bunch of GIFs and graphics and so forth aimed at helping their teen, you know, their classmates understand the risks of distracted driving and on and to be fair it's not just distracted driving it's distracted walking as well so any program like this deserves a shout out this kind of stuff should be going on in every high school in the country 
Yeah, we should definitely have kids involved in the conversation of how to help others make better choices for sure. Uh, they listen to them way more than they listen to us. And, and I think that's, that, that is a positive good note to end on. And a reminder, we have links to uh, all the stories we talked about and a couple we didn't get to in the show notes at cybertraps.com. And uh, our interview with Diana this week is going to be awesome. Uh, you guys will love it. And um, it's going to, we look forward to releasing that to you on Thursday. Well, that sounds great, Jethro. Let me give a quick plug to our questions and feedback page on cybertraps.com. We love show suggestions. We love questions. We love feedback. Um, Jethro will encourage you to leave a five-star rating. I'll just put Absolutely. it out there ahead of time. <laughs> and uh, we will wrap up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast in all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones. Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating interview in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in the audience and look forward to sharing our interview with Diana on Thursday and with Richard Lucero next Monday in lieu of a uh, live show. So those will both be good episodes coming out. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.